The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 28 of Baptism, Paragraph 1. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God, through Jesus Christ, to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Hello everyone, and welcome to today's episode of This We Confess. If over the past few episodes we have considered the sacraments in general, Well, today we drill down into one sacrament in particular. Chapter 28 of the Confession deals with baptism, and then by the grace of God, as we move into chapter 29, we consider the Lord's Supper. As the previous chapter has made clear, the sacraments have always been two in number. The church in the Old Testament had the sacraments of circumcision and the Passover meal, and the church in the New Testament has been given baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now it would be wrong to say that the sacraments of the Old and New Testaments are radically different from one another. Last time out we heard in the very last paragraph of chapter 27 that the sacraments of the Old Testament, in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited, were for substance the same with those of the New. And so whilst the sacraments have changed in outward appearance, their substance remains the same. And the reason that they have changed in outward appearance, the reason why we no longer practice circumcision, and the reason why we no longer come to the Passover meal, is because Christ has come. He is the one who has been cut off on our behalf. He is the one whose blood was shed as a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of his people. He is the Passover lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. And so the imagery of the sacraments has changed. No longer do we see the blood of circumcision, but instead the washing of baptism. And no longer do we bring a lamb to the table and celebrate with the whole family, because Christ is the Passover lamb. His body and blood was given, and so we come instead to the Lord's table. So the sacraments of the Old and New Testament certainly look different, but they share the same substance, and the substance is Jesus Christ our Lord. However, it would be wrong to say that baptism 
is 100% brand new. Here's what the Apostle Peter would say about Noah in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 onwards. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. And then the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 5, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So as we see, even in the Old Testament, we see glimpses of baptism, as Noah and his family are baptised in the flood, and as Moses and his followers are baptised as they pass through the Red Sea. However, with that said, it is also very true that as we read here in paragraph 1, that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. Although we see Old Testament glimpses of baptism, once again we underline what the divines say, that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. And this in itself is not a revolutionary idea. We see it clearly in the pages of the scriptures. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, the Lord Jesus Christ commands us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is Christ's idea and we baptize following Christ's command and we do it in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit in the triune name and we do it with water. So at the very beginning of this paragraph about baptism, it is clear that the sacrament itself comes from Christ himself. It is for our good, it is for our benefit, and we baptise at his command. However, just before we delve deeper into paragraph 1, which deals with what the sign of baptism actually signifies, I think it's important to stop for a wee second and to dispel some myths. We are Presbyterians, and therefore our Baptist brothers and sisters will often point with us and think that we have gone completely wrong when it comes to baptism. Sometimes I have been told that baptism of children is something that should have been thrown out at the Reformation. And sometimes I hear that you Presbyterians believe this, this, and this about baptism. Let me dispel some myths before we go any further. Firstly, as Reformed Christians, we do not believe that baptism saves. Let me say that again. We do not believe that baptism saves. Whenever we baptize a child, or indeed an adult, we do not believe that they are made regenerate, that the water of baptism magically does something to them. This is one of the most common myths that the Presbyterian Church is accused of. 
that we believe in baptismal regeneration, that we believe that baptism saves. We do not believe this. And if you have ever met a Presbyterian who does believe it and preaches it, then you have met someone who is in error, and you have met someone who has denied the confession of their faith. We do not believe that baptism saves, and nor do we believe that baptism makes a child better. Sometimes in Northern Ireland you will hear that a baptised child does better than one who has not been baptised. My friends, if you have heard this and believed this, well unfortunately you have believed superstitious nonsense. A baptised child is not guaranteed health and wealth and strength, whereas an unbaptised child will live a life of depravity. That is simply not the case. We do not believe that baptism saves, nor do we believe that a baptised child will do better in life than a non-baptised child. But as we look at our own house when it comes to the baptism of children, called pedo-baptism, we also want to dispel a myth that our credo-baptist brothers and sisters sometimes put forward. We're told that a child, for example, cannot choose Christ for himself. A child cannot do anything when it comes to the waters of baptism. Therefore, we shouldn't baptise a child. Instead, we should only baptise adults. Adults who are able to profess faith in Christ. Our credo-baptist brothers and sisters sometimes make this claim. And sometimes underneath it, is this statement which suggests that every adult who has been baptised, because they're old enough to think, because they're old enough to declare their faith, therefore they will continue in the faith. A child has no say in this, but an adult will always continue on. My friends, this too is simply not the case. I know many adults baptised in credo-baptist churches who have departed from the faith, who have proved that their profession was false. They have left Christ far behind, and yet, once upon a time in a Baptist church, they were baptised. My friends, just as we do not believe that baptism saves a child, so also we do not believe that everyone who has been baptised will see heaven. It is indeed possible to go to hell with the waters of baptism upon your face. So baptism does not save, whether it is a child or an adult. And baptism does not make a child better than a non-baptized child. And just because an adult comes to the waters of baptism, it is no guarantee that they will continue in the faith. But with those myths dispelled, but here in this paragraph we actually see what baptism signifies. Firstly, the divines tell us that baptism is for the solemn admission of the party baptised into the visible church. So straight away, let's slow down a little bit and remind ourselves that baptism doesn't save. And baptism does not get you entry into the church of Jesus Christ. However, it does admit you into the visible church. The visible church is the church that you go to on a Sunday It is made up of believers and unbelievers. They come, they sit in a building, they praise the Lord together. The wheat and the tares grow up until the final day. And so baptism is your solemn admission into the visible church. If you are to receive entry into the invisible church, then you must believe the gospel. 
You must repent of your sins and you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So once again we underline that we do not believe that baptism saves. However, we do believe that the party baptized is welcome to take their part in the visible church of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, Paul reminds us, For on one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so by baptism, you receive admission into the visible church of Jesus Christ. Secondly, as Reformed Christians, we believe that baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Just by way of reminder, as Presbyterians, we believe in several covenants in the scriptures. There is the covenant of redemption made between the three persons of the Godhead, where the Father chose people, the Son came and died for those people, and the Spirit came and moved and led those people to the Son. This is the covenant of redemption. Then in the garden there is the covenant of works made with the first man, Adam, and he has promised everlasting life on condition of his personal and perfect obedience. The covenant of works was destroyed and wrecked in the garden, and humans have no more ability to keep it. What comes after that, therefore, is called the covenant of grace. And we see it in Genesis chapter 3, and then later it is verbalized to Abraham. The covenant of grace depends upon the seed of Abraham, the one who would come to crush the works of the devil, the one who would come and lay down his life as a ransom for many. We know that that one is the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore as we have repented and believed the gospel, the Lord in his grace gives us signs and seals of the covenant of grace. He makes his words visible. And he does that at the Lord's table, and he does that at the waters of baptism. And so to the one baptized, the water of baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. It is a sign because it points away from the one baptized and points them unto Almighty God, whose promises are always true. And it is a seal of God's promises, where God stamps his authority and ownership on our lives. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. We read this in Romans 4 and verse 11 about Father Abraham. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Abraham was circumcised as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. However, we no longer practice circumcision because as we read in Colossians 2 and verse 11 to 12, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So baptism is a sign of the covenant of grace. It makes God's promises visible in our life, and it is a seal of the righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as Abraham and those who came after him practiced circumcision, 
So today, the Church of Jesus Christ practice a circumcision made without hands, and that is baptism. Thirdly, baptism is a sign of our engrafting into Christ, or our union with Christ. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans 6 and verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then later in Galatians 3 and verse 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, my brothers and sisters, this is not to say once more that anyone who has received baptism or anyone who comes to the Lord's Supper is automatically united to Jesus. Once more, we do not believe that. You must be born again and you must have your faith in Christ to know the wonderful reality of the sacraments. However, as we watch these sacraments, they are sure signs that the one who has faith in Jesus has been united into Jesus. The sacrament, therefore, shows us this union. And not only that, it is a sign of our regeneration. And this is the fourth point that the divines make about baptism. Just as we are cleaned by water, just as we are washed clean from every spot and stain, so too the symbolism of baptism is rich. It is a sign of our cleansing through faith in Jesus. It is a sign of our regeneration, that as we trust Christ, he gives us new hearts, he washes us clean by his precious blood. And it enables then Paul to say in Titus 3 and verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So as we see a child baptized, as we see an adult coming to the waters of baptism, we are being reminded of what Jesus has done for us. Baptism is a sign that points us away from ourselves and it points us to the Christ who died so that by faith we might be united to him, who died so that by faith we might have new hearts, we might be regenerated, and he died so that we could have remission of sins. And this is the fifth use of baptism. In Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1 and verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so once more, when we rejoice in the sacrament of baptism, we are seeing all this glorious gospel truth that we can be united to Jesus, we can be made regenerate, and our sins might be forgiven. And so, if baptism is a sign of what Christ has done for us, it is also a certain sign and reminder that in response we now must go and sin no more. It reminds us that we are to go and to walk in newness of life. The Westminster Divines write that it reminds us of our giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. And so, as we come to baptism and as we seek to improve our baptism, As Christians who are baptized only once, every time we see a baptism, it should drive us to a closer walk with Jesus. Paul would say in Romans 6 and verse 3 to 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Baptism isn't something that we go through just to tick a box, just to go through the motions. Instead, as we are baptised, and instead as we observe baptism in others, it reminds us of God's call upon our life so that we would walk closely with him, we would follow him, we would serve him, and that we would strive after holiness as we attend onto the ordinary means of grace. And so even in this first paragraph of this chapter, and even in this whirlwind treatment of baptism in this episode of the podcast, we see that baptism is a very rich sacrament indeed. It reminds us of our admission. It reminds us of the covenant. It reminds us of our union, regeneration, remission, and our obedience. And so baptism is not to be taken lightly, and it is not to be demanded by any old pagan, and it is not just for a party some Sunday afternoon in the local hotel because you have twisted a minister's arm to have your child baptised. Baptism is nothing less than a sacrament of God, given to his church for their good, for their strengthening, and for their assurance. It is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, and it is to be continued in the church until the end of the world. Jesus says in Matthew 28 and verses 19 to 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Therefore, as we close, I want to simply say that contrary to popular belief, baptism is not about you. It certainly might be for you and for your strengthening and for your assurance, but it is not about you. Baptism points us clearly to the God who works on our behalf. It points us to the God who made the initiative, to the one who reached out to us when we could not reach out to him. And it is therefore a wonderful and perfect picture of sovereign saving grace. I close today with words from the late great Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, who said this about baptism, and especially infant baptism. Every time we baptise an infant, we bear witness that salvation is from God, that we cannot do anything good to secure it, and that we all enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, as little children who do not do, but are done for. We thank God today for baptism and for the sacraments that he has given to his church. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Who or what has caused the imagery of the sacraments to change? Question 2. What are some of the myths surrounding the Presbyterian position on baptism? Question 3. The Westminster Divines in this paragraph give six things that baptism signifies. Name each one and explain them. And question number 4. B.B. Warfield says that baptism shows us that we must enter the kingdom of heaven as little children who do not do, 
but are done for. How does baptism show us the truth of this statement? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn, and until next time, this we confess. <laughs>